Something unusual and even a little hopeful happened in Havana this weekend. That audio you just heard, recorded by Reuters journalist Sarah Marsh, was from a rare public protest outside of the Culture Ministry building. The people speaking and clapping and singing actually forced the Cuban government into dialogue about censorship in the country. Now, who knows where things will go from there, but I know this. Cuba, for all of its moldering beauty for the outsider, should scare us all. Not just because its regime is so cynical and self-aware enough of its own rot that it actually punishes people by preventing them from leaving their country. No, it should scare us also because of people here in the United States, people who hate the press as much as any Cuban functionary. Our outgoing administration rails against socialism while trying to create their own de facto state news channels and publicly intimidating and discrediting any media that doesn't go along with them. It is a perfect blueprint for running a country like a Castro. But maybe, just maybe, better traditions will win out, both in the U.S. and in Cuba. Independent journalism has flourished on the island in the past five years, at great risk, but with a protozoic zeal for truth and real reporting. Today's guest sat down with me on a warm Havana morning just before COVID locked the world down. Her name is Monica Barreau, and she is an independent journalist at the vanguard of this movement, reporting the truth in a country that denies its own facts and doing so at great personal risk. It is enough to make you want to sit in and clap and sing and fight the good fight just like her wherever you live. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. What are we drinking here? Mm, bad coffee. <laughs> oh, that's so harsh. It's not the coffee's fault. It's that I got you an Americano. And you gave me a look as like, am I an American? Why is there water in my espresso? Um, Where is my coffee? This is no coffee. <laughs> but you like the coffee spot. This is a this is a favorite spot of yours, right? Cuba yes. Libro. Why? It's the only place here in Havana that allows you to be there doing whatever you want, uh, the time you want, without buying anything. So <laughs> it's very good and it's very peaceful too. I like the environment there, the people that go there, and also the the service there. It's yeah. very nice and it's very quiet. A lot of places here are like more transactional. Like how much money are we making off of you sitting here? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that place not about that. There's a community around Cuba Libro. Actually, Cuba Libro is surrounded by an American. It's a, a woman from New York. That uh, is that is true. Yeah, she was hanging out there Perhaps. today. Perhaps that's that's the reason. See, look at that. So Americano's not so bad after all. I feel like a local already. I've like had two <laughs> meetings set up over there, just <laughs> hanging out, meeting people. Um, all right, Cuba Libro. That's our that's our plug for the day. We're drinking this coffee, which, by the way, I like their coffee. It's just you're just objecting to the water. Yes, for being an American, it's, it's nice. Yes, <laughs> Americanos are my jam. Um, it's a, it must be a thing of birth. You. You were born in Havana? Here in Havana, right. How common is that? How many people are from the provinces and how many people are like Habaneros? Well, actually in Havana, there are a lot of people who are not from Havana, especially professionals because uh, in other cities or provinces of the country, it's very hard to, to develop a profession. If you, most of the research centers are here in Havana, most of educational centers are here in Havana, uh, the, the best uh, opportunity, opportunities are here in Havana. So it's hard for you if you are a professional to be in Havana, if you're a dancer, if you are a painter, uh, anything is better always in Havana for getting a job. That is, I mean, that's a very positive way of putting it. I have a friend of mine said something like, 
you think things are fucked in Havana. You should see the provinces. <laughs> exactly. This is like New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. In comparison with other provinces of the country. Yes. Right. So the, the hustle, the struggle to like get by, to, to, to have nice things, to mm -hmm. have an easier way of life. It all leads to Yeah, Havana. most of the cinemas are here. In the other provinces, there are no cinemas. So <laughs> that's only a sign of how different are uh, the other provinces of Havana. Have there. you been around Cuba much? Yes, uh, not too much as I, as I wish, but I've been working most of the time. I've been in other provinces reporting. And uh, I've been able of knowing how different life is in, in other places. For example, in Santiago de Cuba, Guantanamo. Guantanamo is especially different from Havana. It's like another country. It's going to another country. It's quite different and quite poor. Yeah. But even the, the poverty is very different of the poverty that you find here in Havana. And uh, sometimes you think that when you go to a community, a rural community and in the country, uh, you think that perhaps because they don't want the things that you have, you think that they are poor people. But sometimes uh, they don't need the same things that you need. And uh, the concept of, of, of what it's poverty changes a lot. And of course, you have to be careful because sometimes you could go there with a romantic vision of, oh, they are not poor people, they are just uh, so a sp a spiritual pe person. They're living so, off the land. Yes, yeah, and, and that's not uh, the whole truth. Uh, and uh, you have to be, to be able of... Um, distinguish the of distinguishing the the differences but it's very poor and so for you have an idea if you want to have an idea of how poor are people in the other sides of the country most of the uh, illegal communities here in Havana which are built with anything the name in Spanish is Yegibon that is actually like a arrive and, and put it it's uh -huh. like you get to a place and make your home with anything with uh, goods with uh, things that you find in the, in the garbage with things that no one wants and uh, they build their homes like that especially wooden homes like shanty towns. very poor yeah. and without electricity without uh, sanitary conditions uh, vulnerable to, to many disasters and they come they rather to be here in that conditions than being in in their provinces they are some of them even living in buildings that are uh, closed because they are falling apart and they try to expose themselves to die in a, in a collapse that being in their provinces. So the poverty is very hard in other parts of the country. That's why, and they're not necessarily allowed to be here. They just come for the opportunity or something. Exactly. The, there's no uh, an immigration poly, policy. Uh, like uh, internal, fair, internal migration exactly, is internal. outlawed it, in general? No, it's not allowed. Uh, most of the people... Uh, have to to find um, like strategies for staying here in Havana uh, legally, but most of them are not legal. And all the times they are uh, sent back to their provinces. The the authorities can stop you in the street and ask your identification. If you are not from Havana, they could send you back to your province. So that's imagine if you cannot be in the capital of your country because you could send could be sent back to to your hometown. You could be deported. Exactly yeah. in your own country. In your own country. <laughs> well, that's I guess another sign of how eager people are here to to come here is they just will undertake that risk also being stopped. Exactly. Sent back to Pinar del Rio or wherever. Okay, how did you get into journalism? Oh. <laughs> that says, it sounds like a bit of regret in that side we can we can examine that also but let's let's start with just the facts how did this we were talking about it so how did, that's a big question well i i started i started writing i i i'm a person who who tells stories that's what i am 
and uh, I write since I was 10 years old, more or less. And uh, I decided to study journalism because I didn't have too many options once I finished uh, like my bachelor. No, no bachelor is like a high school, but it's not actually high school because it's like a, a, a technical degree or something like uh -huh. that. In my time, there was no uh, high school in the cities, so uh, I didn't want to go to to the countryside to study. So uh, I decided to do like a technical uh, study, something like that. So after you got a technical degree in languages? In accountability. Accountability. Exactly. You mean accounting, like numbers? Count, yes, numbers. Ah, okay. <laughs> yes, and um, when I finished there, I had to to try to get to the university with a special tests that were like a, a contest. So a lot of people uh, under twenty five uh, go to to goes to that kind of test if they want to go to the university, but that's not the regular. A way to the university because you are competing with a lot of people at the same time and uh, journalism was a very easy career because in a way because they they had or they still have a special test so you had to do or you have to do a, a general culture test and also a, a test that is uh, for writing, for showing your abilities to write, and another one that is an interview. And for me, it was like a very easy to 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 face that test, or I thought that. And well, it results that I was selected at the end, and that's how I end up in in journalism, at least in the career, because I had a second time in my life when I decided to to do journalism, because I decided in that time to study journalism because I wanted to to have a degree, a university degree, any kind of degree, any kind of degree. For me, it was like uh, I don't know, it wasn't a way to to make happy to my fathers and to my parents and. Uh, Did they have university degrees? Yes. They expected that of you? Yes, they expected that. And it was not a, an imposition, but I want them to to feel... Uh, to, I want them to feel proud of me. And uh, for me, it was important to, to do that. I wanted also to do that. Uh, it was not a, like a... A, a huge thing for me or a sacrifice I didn't have to sacrifice anything for studying journalism journalism and uh, it was something that I just wanted to do but I I didn't know that I wanted to be a journalist yeah or, what did you think of journalism like did you have role models or you were not really thinking about it I only much? think that uh, I could write if I'm a journalist I will write and it's fine if I can write of course in the career was completely different And when I graduated from the university, I didn't want to write anything. For me, it was very frustrating the whole uh, the whole career because um, the education here in Cuba is very, 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 very uh, violent in a way, and it's very old, and it's very I don't know. It's it's not focused in 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 making more a more creative person or making making you like a, a free person is focused in in make you uh, in teach you how to reproduce something yeah I, and that's I, annoying <laughs> yeah i remember this about cuba for all of its you know sort of claims of being a revolutionary society certainly in education i mean all of my friends who were musicians had to go to laina and and play in symphonies, you know. Exactly. And their hearts were always beating with, you know, with salsa or son or charanga, but they had to be playing Brahms, you know. Exactly. Uh, I imagine it's something like that in the university course for uh, for journalism. It's the same. It's exactly the same. So I, I had to leave uh, a discovery of journalism after I graduated. And that discovery started when I became an independent journalist. I had the, the idea that uh, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to do journalism, but I didn't... Uh, I didn't had I didn't have the opportunity of living what was uh, being a journalist because when I finished university I I was in a state magazine uh, during almost 
two years. And after that, uh, of course, it was a very frustrating experience too because uh, I didn't feel proud of what I was uh, writing and I and no one uh, recognized my, my job or even the magazine at what, all. What was it called? Bohemia. Bohemia. Bohemia, which is uh, the oldest magazine in Latin America. It was found in 1908. Wow. Uh, yes, it's a very old magazine. In, in, in the 40s and the 50s, it was a very good magazine, but... Well, after 15, uh, 1959, everything changed here. And it got, and it's now a government magazine that's yes. not in the business of saying interesting things or making, <laughs> making stars of its writers. No, not in the business of making journalism at all. Yeah. No, um, only propaganda. So, How many years were you there? Uh, almost two years. Did you learn anything from there? Yes, of course. I learned that I didn't want to do that kind of journalism. <laughs> <laughs> that, is like, that is the best on-the-job learning you can do. I learned I don't want to do this. Exactly. What more can you ask from a job? God bless Bohemia <laughs> and all of its lessons for you. Exactly. And after that, I, I had a similar experience because I was in a research center of philosophy. And uh, I was working with local governments uh, as a researcher. And uh, trying to to collaborate and to uh, develop process of participation, democratic process for changing things in in their communities. But then I I realized that I was there thinking as a journalist. I didn't want to to make any advice. I didn't want to coordinate any process. I wanted to tell the problems to everybody. <laughs> that is a very nice distillation of yes. what journalists do. Well, yes. Let me. I want to shout about some problems. Is that too much to ask? Okay. Yes. So then you took off, and that is that when you decided independent journalism. Yes, uh, at that time, uh, I, 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 in my reality, I didn't find. Uh, like a project which I could feel identified and in that moment specifically uh, Periodismo de Barrio came out as a project the 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 announce of uh, Elaine Diaz which is the, the director right now uh, of this project and she was asking people to participate uh, to apply to the to the job so um, the name means neighborhood journalism exactly it's like community journalism mm -hmm. but it's not because they are uh, making uh, journalism from communities but the but the point of view that the media assumes because in the state media most of the time the the stories are told from the official sources point of view so uh, the the perspective in Periodismo de Barrio, was to tell the stories from the people's points of view. And this was a non-aligned, I assume, non-government connected project. No, it was independent, completely independent. That's dangerous. Yes, it was one of the first uh, independent projects that came out after Catorce y Medio. But Catorce y Medio was uh, a newspaper, especially a newspaper, and... Uh, it was a result of the experience of Joanny Sanchez as a blogger. So Periodismo de Barrio, uh, it, it came from a different experience because Elaine Dia was a professor in the university, was also a, a blogger, a, an important blogger at the same time of Joanny Sanchez. And uh, she was an Iman Fellow in Harvard. Uh -huh. And after ending the, her time in, in Harvard, in the Neiman Fellowship, she came back and founded this project, Periodismo de Barrio. It was like the result of the fellowship. What, what year are we talking about? That was in 2016. 2016. All right. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and have mm -hmm. another sip of the coffee. One of the great things about Americanos is you have more liquid, there's just more to drink. <laughs> What an invention. No, sorry, 2015 was... 2015. October 2015 was the first time we published. She came back from the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard to start this project, which... Exactly. Um, is, is, you know, takes uh, what we would call chutzpah. You know, it's a... Um, as someone who got arrested in Cuba, in part thanks to uh, the authorities' distaste for Ioanni Sanchez, <laughs> like... I feel the risk of this endeavor like pretty strongly. How were you nervous? 
Uh, I try. Uh, I don't think on that. Uh, you can't be uh, here doing independent journalism and thinking on that all the time. Of course, I'm conscious about that, about the risks that I'm assuming all the time. But when I do my job, I try to focus on my job. I, I don't like to have distractions. And you uh, have to be prepared. I'm prepared for anything, for going to jail, for being arrested, for being regulated, uh, which means that you are not allowed to, to, to travel abroad. And uh, I live prepared in a way, <laughs> all you can be uh, for this kind of situations that are very weird. And Does in, that mean like always having a bag ready to uh, go? That means to have a security, uh, um, a security protocol. Uh-huh, yeah. A security protocol and uh, that means to be uh, to have your information in safe places that means that you have uh, networks for denouncing any kind of uh, harassment or violence that you suffer uh, that means that uh, you know what to do if uh, something goes wrong immediately you have you know how to react I think that that means that I have think I have thought in that. But uh, I'm not thinking in that. I had the time to think in that. So when I have to work, I focus on my work. And you're not always nagged by no. unfinished business or maybe not being no, prepared. No, there, nothing like it's not intelligent because there's nothing you can do for avoiding that. It's like start thinking about that. You can die anytime. <laughs> there's danger all the time, but you don't think that because it's not, it's not useful. There's nothing you can do for preventing uh, life to happen. Life is going to happen. <laughs> and, Death taxes and possible arrest by the uh yes. subjugating what, authorities what i'm doing is illegal there are a lot of um uh, felonies that i'm committing as an independent journalist it's completely illegal yes yes with 20 years of jail something like that <laughs> that's amazing yeah i would have suspected that that the laws were not so naked, maybe, that it was more just the practice of repressing independent journalism, but there's actually laws no, against, yes. there's like very specific statutes. The penal code actually has, a, well, the constitution first doesn't recognize the independent journalists because they say that the only uh, media that has uh, the right to exist is the media who are ruled by the state, which are the media who belongs also to the party, in a way. And uh, you are out of the constitution, just for, for, for starting, no? And uh, when you go to the penal code, you, you find that there are a lot of um, articles there that you are violating all the time. For example, I'm not, um, I'm, it's like a tax evasion. Mm. That would be one because I don't pay anything. Uh, I don't. I don't pay taxes for for my incomes because my uh, profession is not recognized. So I'm not paying any taxes to the society. You can't even declare your income because exactly it, you my job something. doesn't exist. Wow. <laughs> exactly. So there's another figure here in Cuba that is very, very, very special. That is a like dangerous state. That so if someone uh, is like uh, vulnerable to commit a crime, just like in a minority report in the movie, could go to jail for one year or two years. Just for a thought crime. Yes, because they the authorities think that uh, you are able of committing a crime because, for example, if you don't have a, a job, a regular job, you are uh, seen like a person that is uh, capable of committing a crime. So they could use the dangerous state for or dangerous condition for put you in jail. So only with that figure, they could put you in jail. And there's also another law, a very important law. The name is, well, the number is uh, 88 law. That is related with the embargo from the U.S. and it says that any journalist that uh, or person that 
publish something that in a way uh, give reasons to the U.S. or the enemy to to sustain the embargo could go to jail. And that was the law that they used, the government used in 2003 during the Black Spring when 75 persons went to, to jail for doing journalism or any kind of activist. How how deeply is this podcast episode violating law 88? <laughs> well, if you are not here like a, like a journalist and if you didn't go to the International Press Center or something like that in English, yeah. uh, probably you are doing something illegal. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is why I got arrested last, uh, last time I was arrested here. Yes. But what the fuck? I mean, they don't give you, they won't give you permission. No. So why, why ask? I mean, at the, I mean, to be honest, like that's, that's why I didn't, I think that's why I got arrested last time was because Probably. one, <laughs> we had done something at Time Magazine with Ioani. Um, but two, we, I applied for a journalist visa. So they knew I was coming. They just never got back to me. They were just exactly. like, thanks for the application. If you do show up, we're going to arrest you. So exactly. um, now, you know, it's, a, it's just a profoundly different experience to face that as an American who gets to go home. So I don't want to compare our experiences, you know, the risk that you put yourself in, you know, and, and your colleagues is, is, is a very different, uh, form and style and, and gravity. Um, is the work that you do worth it? Yes, I believe so. I'm not, there are a lot of journalists that are asking, uh, all the time, what's the meaning of what I do if nothing changed? I'm not a kind of journalist. <laughs> I think that my job is to denounce uh, what's wrong in my society and the, the work of uh, activists and the society and politicians is to fix it. And I think I do my job. And if, um, if everybody do their jobs, uh, the society were better in a way. And uh, I'm glad I feel fine with myself Uh, knowing that I do uh, my best and I do my job. And if in the future all these uh, projects uh, die because the, the conditions are very, are very aggressive, uh, I think that we already, made, uh, we already make um, an important statement which show to the government that we are able to do uh, journalism, a quality journalism, without supervision of the Communist Party. And that's important. We show that to, not only to the government, but also to a lot of people, and even to a lot of people outside Cuba that perhaps thought that There was nothing in Cuba important to see uh, regarding to independent journalists or regarding to journalism at all. And in the last five year, uh, years, a lot of independent projects has uh, received a lot of recognitions from international uh, prizes, uh, from different centers, academies, and other media. And that's important. We show that Uh, there's talent in Cuba for doing journalism, for doing uh, even journalism in such hard conditions. And we show to the government that we don't need them to know what's right and what's wrong in journalism. So in part of being outside the system is you also have to maintain your own set of standards and your own sort of uh, ethical way of doing journalism. Is that training process of training independent journalists in not just being against the state, but being objective, right? And being fact-based is that, uh, how much is educating other journalists and, and yourself in that model, uh, a part of what you do? Well, uh, a lot of journalists that are working in independent projects right now, uh, came out from universities, from the career of journalism. And um, we had like uh, basic ideas of what journalism was, but there was when we started to do journalism, when we realized that there was a, a long way and a, a, a very big 
zone that was very unknown for us. And uh, that took a lot of discussions, for example, first in Periodismo de Barrio when I was, and that takes still a lot of discussions because there are huge differences between uh, the different independent magazines and newspapers that uh, are now in Cuba working. But um, I think that we are trying to, in a way, to, to read and to, to study how other magazines or newspapers in the world has faced uh, these problems, these conflicts, and to adapt those ideas and those codes and those standards to our conditions. One of the things that for me is very important is that uh, not because you are in a in a society where you, where there's no uh, press freedom you are allowed to to be uh, to be messy or unresponsible with your with your job you have to be very uh, precise and very rigorous all the time it doesn't matter if there's no access to sources there's no reason for for being uh, for being, a, I don't know, like a, a bad journalist. You have to, to follow the rules and you have to, to make a, a journalism like if you were in a society with press freedom. What do you think the average Cuban thinks about journalism and what it can do for their lives? That's hard. I I think that when I started to do independent journalist in journalism in 2015, most of the people were uh, afraid of what the, the independent journalism was. I myself I didn't recognize myself as an independent journalist because that's uh, like a bad word here in Cuba. Everything that is independent is a bad word. Even democracy is a bad word. Human rights is a bad word. And everything is related with the enemy. Mm. Those are uh, ideas of the enemy. And uh, in the beginning, I I realized that there was a lot of people afraid of uh, of what the independent journalism meant. But right now, uh, in, two, in 2020, uh, that has changed a lot. And you find people who write, who write to you to ask you to tell their stories. And uh, I think that, in a way, that's a result of the, the reputation that we have built, not only uh, in the magazines where I've been working, but in all the independent media in general. And uh, people realize that we are uh, allies, especially people who are suffering uh, injustice and who want something to, to want to, to tell. But still it's hard because sometimes you have to, to make an educational job. You have to explain people what does it mean to give a statement, to give an interview, to tell a story. And uh, imagine how is a society where we have living we have been living without press freedom for 60 years of, of, of expression freedom yeah that's something uh, most of the people here have grown up without knowing what is fre uh, press freedom or without without knowing what is diversity or without knowing what is association freedom so uh, there's a you have to be conscious that there are a lot of uh, ignorance a lot of uh, preju pre Pre prejudice, yeah. prejudices, <laughs> and uh, you have sometimes to to work with that, and you get to a community for uh, foreign journalists. It's very hard that to to understand that, even for journalists who are dealing with Cuba outside Cuba, mm. that's very hard because sometimes you cannot make an interview in the in the first time. You only have to get to the community and sit with someone and start talking about anything but you cannot uh, get to some place in a hurry and make a question uh, suddenly you have to go there and try to 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 get to know the people and being i don't know uh, relaxed and get the people the opportunity to meet you and it's a very slow process well the, it's, i mean to, it's possible that that's good journalism practice anyway but it's a pain in the ass when you're on deadline 
And exactly. You, yes. You might not feel like you have an afternoon to just sit and get comfortable. I have, exactly. I have been, yeah, I've had some experiences with just being almost sort of denounced um, by people here when I'm trying to work as a journalist or when I have um, even people I know just when I came back as a journalist having um, just saying like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what your publication is up to. I don't know what, you know, these are people who I, I love, but I think they're in their head is really, really danger, like warning signs going off, you know, that, uh, that international media is kind of out to get them. Yes, that's the enemy. It is. You're an enemy. <laughs> an enemy. <laughs> it is an enemy. That's so crazy. Yes. But I. So you have to deal with that. Um, where are you publishing these days? So you started with community journalism. Where do you publish your work? Right now, I'm working for El Estornudo, but I I collaborate with different media. With another one that the name is Toca. That it could be like. Uh, the Tosh or something like that. Uh-huh. And um, and these are all digital publications? Yes, independent media. Independent digital, media. of course, because we cannot print. Nobody would give you permission to print no, what you do. No, that's like... Uh, uh, <laughs> if you want to go to jail, <laughs> you, you should print <laughs> what you're publishing. <laughs> Excellent. Let's make a plan to go to jail. We'll exactly. print out this podcast it's and hand it out on the street corners. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, it's like Russia where you can actually exist in independent media as long as you stay away from television. That's their like no-go zone, you know, because they know television kind of controls the Russian mind. Uh, is there any video or television journalism that you would qualify or classify as independent here? No, no television. Well, there are people who makes, uh, make video, but only online. No, it's, it's not broadcasted. Only for Facebook or... Facebook, uh, YouTube, mm. or just in the same platforms of the media. How do these publications make money? Well, most of them all live uh, with grants, international grants from different organizations. It depends on the, on the publication. For example, uh, Periodismo de Barrio, which is the only one that has a, a transparency policy regarding financement, uh, receive money from uh, the Swedish Foundation of Human Rights, uh, which works here with uh, organizations that belongs to the government. That's the only one that works with an independent organization and at the same time with an organization of the government. Uh, the other one is Open Society, which also gives money to El Estornudo. Uh, and the other one, in the case of uh, El Estornudo, not in the case of Periodismo de Barrio, is National Endowment for Democracy, which is a very controversial organization. But uh, the problem with the independent magazine here is that uh, most of the international uh, NGOs that already work with the with the government, with the state, with any organization or project of the state, are not allowed to work at the same time with independent uh, organizations. That uh, restricts a lot your opportunities to get access to uh, to to fi fi finance uh, sources. This is kind of a deal they have to make with the government. You want to be involved, you want to be connected, you have to stay away from independent media. Exactly. Independent media and any project who is independent from the government, any kind of project, even if you have a project uh, focused in the community and in the natural disasters or, uh, I don't know, a trash challenge, anything. The problem here is that you cannot be independent from the state. The state has to control everything. Well, let's, uh, since we're breaking some laws, let's dive right into more law breaking. Tell me, what is the, what is the biggest problem in Cuba? Like, what, what, what's the, what is keeping this country back? In my opinion, it's the lack of freedoms. It's not the embargo. It's not uh, that we are a poor country. It's the lack of freedoms. And... Uh, the government is being very arrogant. A lot of young people are leaving the country. A lot of capable people, a lot of, a lot of uh, talented people. And uh, that's something that you cannot get back, that loss. 
something that you cannot measure how long you how long you will take to to recovering uh, from something like that and uh, the government is only worried about keeping the power in all directions for me that's the biggest problem here in cuba the brain drain is enormous and and i mean nobody knows how many people have even just died trying to leave this country which is insane um but a, a sign that people who just see opportunity is not something that's going to come here in cuba is is enormous um how do you as a you know free press loving journalist <laughs> stay in cuba i mean you could go practice you know Uh, journalism freely in so many places I love uh, to do journalism here of course everyone who lives in Cuba uh, has thought about leaving the country it's not possible that you find uh, someone here with uh, without thinking on that in at some point in their lives uh, but I love the stories that I told I tell here and I love Uh, the reality uh, even with so many problems and uh, I think that we have sometimes to get away for a while actually right now I applied for a fellowship but uh, only for 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 living for a few period of time only a year I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to be away from from my job more than that And, um, is that in the states or in Europe? Yes, in yeah. in the U.S. And um, because you need to to in a way to to see your country, to think your reality from far, from the distance, yeah. because this is a very a very weird reality, and you have to 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 keep in mind that the the, the world is not like that. Yeah, this people, is no normal at all. Monica is absolutely right. It's very fucking strange here. Yeah. But I can imagine just growing up in this system, you do kind of get used to, you know, whether you're opposed to it or agree with it, it's still, it's your yes. reality. And it's not that like the other realities are better or worse. It's not that it's they, they are like more normal realities. Uh, and normal even with problems. Normal, it doesn't mean that they don't have problems. They do have problems, but... Uh, the time is different, the problems uh, are faced in a different way and it's important for people who are working here under so much stress in order to, to keep their mental peace that they uh, be able of leaving the country for a while and coming back. That's very important, very important. Well, without naming names, when you arrived here today, you were kind of in a fluster because uh, there's someone in your community who's facing the possibility of restrictions. This is a common thing, a common threat is restrictions against travel, possibly, right? That, that they might keep uh, journalists from leaving the island as punishment. Is that is is that a, a tactic of the state? Yes, there are a lot of. Uh, I don't know the the number, the exact number right now, but uh, there are. I think there are more than 100 journalists who are uh, regulated who cannot leave the the country, and uh, only in this uh, in these days, in the past few days, uh, I had. Uh, two friends, uh, very, very close friends, who were uh, called by the authorities for facing uh, interrogations. Is that the right word? Yeah, I mean it could for be. Facing, yes, they basically uh, bring them in for questioning. Exactly, exactly, and uh, they are asking all the time about their troubles, about their uh, their job, and one of the of the friends that were called by the authorities was even threats uh, threat it received many threats about uh, his own security and uh, uh, because of the the work that he does and uh, that's something that is all the time very common all the time is happening well they're threatening security in, in in a way of saying like hey we can't protect you if something bad happens or is it a more they they has uh, they have a threat uh, Journalists who 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 have uh, kids 
with their kids, they have talked about, hey, I know where your kids play. Hey, I know that your kid is sick right now. Be careful. I know that your wife is pregnant. So you shouldn't be uh, like this because you want her to receive a good attention. And there are like a lot of subtle threats. And uh, this is this one with kids, with people who has uh, who have kids. Uh, there's the other one with journalists because they want you to leave the country. That's like the the strategy. They don't kill you, but they want you to quit the your, what you're doing, or uh, to leave the country. That's in a way uh, the way they define to to silence you, and uh, they don't want a scandal of putting you in jail. They don't want the scandal of killing you, but they make you leave the country. And if you come back to the country, they could. Uh, put a restriction for getting out again. So there are a lot of journalists uh, who leave the country and they are afraid of coming back because if they come back, they could be retained here in Cuba. That's the case of Michael Gonzalez, who is uh, the director of Tremenda Nota, who was uh, in the U.S. and he wanted to come back to Cuba. And he said that he was to stay here to work as a journalist. And when he tried to go out again just for 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 a short period of time with the intention of coming back, the government said that he was not allowed to, to leave the country because that's uh, a way of sending, uh, sending a message to the rest of the journalists that are abroad the country. Don't come back because if you come back, we won't let you to go out, to go out again. And you could be here without uh, going out, I don't know, a year, two years, ten years. <laughs> There's no a period of time. What does your family think about what you do? Well, my mother and my father, they are very supportive. I don't have kids, so uh, that's easier for me taking this decision because uh, there's no uh, bigger consequences for for anyone else. And um, of course, my mother is worried all the time. And my father is also worried all the time, but I I have prepared prepared them. I talk with them about the risks. Which, uh, uh, for example, when I was detained in 2016, that was a very complicated experience for my family, and uh, I tried them to to be aware that my work is not easy but that's what makes me happy i couldn't be any other thing that's my reason of of in in life that's my my dream my that's what i am that's what i am and tell me about that detention in 2016 uh that was in guantanamo in this special place that is not like anything else in the country and um, we were there, we were nine journalists, and we were to, um, we went to Guantanamo to cover a hurricane, the pass of a hurricane, uh, Matthew. And uh, we, we arrived the first day. It was, the hurricane just had happened. We made a crowdfunding, very fast crowdfunding for internet. And we, we get the money to thousand dollars to make a coverage with nine people it was uh, um, it was like a very short amount of money for such a big coverage and uh, we get to Guantanamo uh, one day and at the next day we were all detained it was uh, like 48 hours and uh, we faced different uh, interrogations we went, uh, first we were detained in Baracoa, and then we were, uh, um, we were, um, um, how can I say, they, they take us, uh, took us to, to a military unit uh-huh. in the city, in the center of the city, that is like two hours from Baracoa. And they kept uh, they kept doing interviews of who we were and what what we were doing there, and um, they make us like an advice, a letter of of advice, something like that. Yeah, that at the when you have four of that, uh, you could go to jail. <laughs> 
<laughs> so it's like a warning card. A warning, a exactly. A yellow card in exactly. the game of exactly. how you get to jail. Exactly. And, uh, well, that's like the what happened, but what it meant, that process for me was that I lost uh, the confidence for, for doing my job. Uh, it was very fast, and I I think I I reacted how I called, uh, we are not prepared for, for dealing with that. It was not something uh, too dangerous, but it was uh, humiliating because we were treated as criminal and the women had to take off our clothes and, uh, because they wanted to check that we, do, we went, that we didn't hide anything in our bodies and we had to, to, um, to go down naked and to posh so they realized that we didn't have anything inside us and that was humiliating but i mean uh, that's got to be kind of the point right to, yes to exactly physically humiliate it's you. like you are not the only you don't have rights i can do with you whatever i want i can put you in that position so it's hard to recover from that they don't uh, uh, harm us in, in, in a physical way but psychologically it was a, a huge impact for everybody there in the, even for the magazine it was a, a, a hard process and I remember that we had a lot of discussions when we started blaming each other uh, you, you shouldn't be uh, like that if that happens again and you, you should have acted different you shouldn't have said uh, this and you, we, we started to, to judge each other and I think it was part of the trauma of living that and uh, it was hard as a team to, to, to overcome to, to deal with that and in an independent and personal way, for me, it took like almost a year to to report again. To <laughs> I did my job, but uh, I was all the time shaking, and I was uh, very concerned. Um, and I put myself uh, like limits, uh, trying to avoid a, a situation like that. And uh, it was hard <laughs> to recover to that. Um. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, and I I can only imagine, like, yeah, that is a difficult thing to bounce back from when, as you said at the very beginning of the interview, like, you can't do this job looking over your shoulder. Like, you have to be free somehow in your mind, uh, and and I can imagine regaining that was a challenge. Um, did you have some of your colleagues, some of the nine, who, who couldn't get back into journalism? Two of them. Two of them. Yes. Two of them. Actually, one uh, was a guy from from Santiago. One of them was uh, from Santiago de Cuba, and the other one was from Villa Clara, and uh, he was not able of reporting again. The other one uh, neither, and uh, uh, the one who was from Villa Clara uh, is now living in the U.S. because mm. after that he was not able of writing anything again. Yeah. And they, 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 they detained you in Baracoa, the first city, the first village of Cuba. Exactly. It's like very, uh, there's a lot of uh, symbolic meaning. It's really fucked up that that's, uh, you know, it's many years later, that's where we are, right? Exactly. Um, but it's, it's when, when you, it's like, I don't know if you have practiced sports. When you practice sports, you have to focus on the... I don't know the the place that you want to get when you're running or when you are swimming or something. You cannot think in oh I'm tired or oh this is happening to. You only think in your objective, and that's the same with each story. I don't want to be the story. I don't want to be in jail. I want to get the story, and for me, is each story is that it's like a like a competence with the state. I want to get the story and I want to get the uh, the biggest amount of information that I can uh, find. And I'm playing all the time with the government and to, to avoid them. Like if, if, if am I hiding all the time, like the heights, is that, yeah. thing, that game? Because it's easy to, to be detained. It's very easy to be detained. And it's, it's, each story is like a game. 
and you want to get the story without going to jail, uh, without being detained, and you want to get the 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 best story that you are capable of obtaining. That's a hell of a game. (laughs) That doesn't sound very fun at all. (laughs) What kind of games are you playing? Just focus on the story. Just in the story. Just think in the story. (laughs) Um, For our listeners in the United States and Europe, who I hope are appropriately educated and slightly shocked by um, some of these stories that you're telling, like what what can we do as outsiders? What what would you like the world to be knowing and doing about Cuba? I think that it's important to be aware of how how is working the the repressions and the, the repression on the lack of freedom in Cuba, not only because of uh, the need that we have for solidarity, but also because uh, what's happening here could happen in any place, and uh, the government has been very very good trying to to avoid attention about what's happening here. Because they say, well, no one dies here. And the international NGOs and organizations, they look at Cuba, no one is dying. That's fine, Mexico is worse. And of course, nothing is worse than losing your life, than being killed. But uh, the purpose of the government here is to to silence you, to to make you, make you quit to your job and to maintain power, and the government has been doing that for 60 years. That's something that is very interesting to to, to be aware of. <laughs> and uh, we were uh, a society that in the before 1959, we were just like any other society in the world. We were not different. Uh, we had, of course, we had a, a, a dicta- dictatorship before the revolution, but uh, still, before even the dictatorship, we, we had a society with problems and with good things like any other society in Latin, Americans, in Latin America, with a lot of problems, but we were very similar. And what happened here could happen in any place. So you have to be aware how the government can uh, control in order to, to maintain uh, power, because this has destroyed generations and generations and generations the fact that you are here talking with me and you didn't this uh, you didn't do this job 20 years before it's not because 20 years before there was another there was not another monica or another uh, journalist uh, in my countries like they they couldn't exist there was not the opportunity so imagine how many generations we have lost yep I'm imagining it's a lot. Yeah. It's all this human capital, you know, it's all the great energy and uh, intellect of a country that's just kind of stepped on. Um, have you been following what's happening in the States with kind of our press problems and, you know, the sort of decline of big media and decline of trust? Do you guys look at that and, and, you know, get any weird feelings about it? I assume that American press freedom is something of a model for you. And now it's kind of under its own threat. I think that uh, not exactly American press freedom, but many media in the U.S. Uh, of course, there are a lot of things that I admire in the American system. There are a lot of that I don't admire, <laughs> of course. And uh, yeah, next time we'll talk. Let's be in America, <laughs> and I can <laughs> unload about all the bullshit that we do in America. <laughs> Not to make it one-sided, this conversation. But there's, uh, I admire the New Yorker a lot. I admire uh, Mother Jones a lot, and the the job that they have done uh, regarding the prisons in the U.S. Uh, it's for, for me it's amazing. Uh, ProPublica also. And the Atlantic. Um, I love to read American press, especially nonfiction. I I follow a, a place that the name is Long Form Journalism. Oh uh, yeah. Yes, and I I go there a lot oh. to to read what they do. <laughs> they uh, they made the mistake of putting me on their podcast once. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, and um, they for, are yeah. Long Form is amazing. Yes, and. Um, 
I read a lot of journalists from from the U.S. and I think that they are doing a, a great job. A lot of people there are doing a, a great job. It's a it's a hard uh, world for journalists anywhere. Anywhere it's hard for for us. We don't receive enough money. We work with uh, with uh, a few <laughs> money and. Uh, Uh, we receive like the worst part of the of everything. We are accused all the time. In some countries, we are killed. Uh, people hate us. Like we are the messengers. <laughs> we only share the message. <laughs> we tell what uh, powerful people want to hide, but we are not the the guilty of what's wrong. I'm not uh, inventing the problems. I'm just telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> There you go. Yes. On record. But I, yes, and I, I admire a lot of uh, magazines and newspapers in the U.S. Actually. Good. You hear that? They need <laughs> they need a little cheering up. I think it's going to be a brutal season. We're going to be attacked on all sides uh, for sure up to the election. So a little Oosh. bit of yeah <laughs> encouragement and love from Cuba goes a long way. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, Monica, what a, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, kind of unbelievable uh, uh, bravery in, in what you do. Thank you for doing it. Thanks to you for telling it. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our online editor. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Thank you also to Connor Gorey, the American we mentioned in the episode who owns Cuba Libro Cafe in the Vedado neighborhood. If you can, consider donating to the cafe, which funds worthy health and education projects on the ground in Havana. I will put a link in the show notes. Next up on this feed, back to our archive episodes released without needing a subscription for the first time. It's Chris Ying in San Francisco, a giant of food media, a writer, a producer, a podcaster from Lucky Peach to Major Domo. He drank Theraflu or something hardcore like that, and we talked about the special alchemy of food and life in the Mission District. This Thursday, we will meet you there.